Hello, this is Alex. And this is Ian. And we are currently somewhere in between uh, Caribbean islands. Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on where you're from. Definitely Caribbean. Um, where are we? St. Vincent? We're, no, no, right Saint, now we're in Grenada. Oh, Grenada, Grenada that's, that's spelt Grenada. Grenada, Grenada. You say Grenada. Well, we've been in Barbados. Yeah, you say Grenada. Uh, we've, been, say we've been in St. Lucia, where we went snorkeling. Oh, yes. Lovely snorkel. Um, but we were just in Florida and we thought we'd kick off 2020 with a two-part podcast just because it was so long I split it into two. Because this chap has so much to talk about. Um, a friend, very good friend of ours, Glenn Zatola, amazing trumpet player and saxophone player, equally great on both instruments. He's been playing like, for amazing. several decades. He um, played with everyone. He played from with Benny Goodman when he was young uh, towards the end of Benny Goodman's career and he also was, speaking of Benny Goodman, was part of the recreation of the Benny Goodman famous Carnegie Hall concert uh, when they recreated it in the, Fif- in the 80s. Or 50, something. 50th anniversary. 50th anniversary, yeah. Uh, unbelievable, he played with everybody. Right, I think that's enough ramble, yeah. Pre- pre-ramble. Ramble, yeah. So uh, my voice is very hoarse in it, a lot of uh, singing and playing. Hopefully it's not quite as hoarse now, but almost as bad. So uh, just excuse my hoo-ness. And uh, listen to Glenn talking about his uh, amazing history and stories that he wants to pass down to the future generations. Here we go. There we are, we're going to do, this is episode three, three of our podcasts. That's three over, what, two months? That's pretty regular, isn't it? Uh, not bad. That's regular for us, without yeah. our schedule. And so here we are, we're at the end of our, well, getting towards the end of our US tour. We're in Florida in the uh, sunshine in winter, just gone into 2020. And we're with a friend of ours who's been a friend for 20 years, apparently. Doesn't seem that long, 20 years. Uh, the maestro and legend, trumpet player and saxophone player and everything else, is Mr. Glenn Zatola. Nice to see you again. And you, it's amazing. I can't believe it's 20 years. You know, I told my wife, I said, but she said, Glenn, it was like 20 years ago you first met. And it was probably during maybe the Christmas show that I was doing all the Christmas shows here. Oh, wow. And you were performing and then we first met then. Yeah, we're at the the, uh, Fort Harrison at the moment in the cafe that fought outside the front of Fort Harrison, which is a big, famous, legendary hotel in Clearwater, Florida, where... Woody Herman? Yeah, Woody Herman, I think... The Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones wrote... Didn't they write Satisfaction here? They did. They did. So a musical history just here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, where to begin with your legendary story? It's almost like a Lord of the Rings trilogy or something, but... I've been blessed. Okay, I came from a musical family. My father was a, and you're a trumpet player, you can... Yeah. He was a great trumpet player. He played jazz like Harry James and Louis Armstrong. Played uh-huh. lead trumpet like, people may not know who this is, Conrad Gazzo. And he was a great arranger. He was an arranger on the Claude Thornhill band wow. with Gil Evans. Wow. And he was also classical, could play Carnival Venice. He played in all the Italian concert bands where the trumpet player there was no singers the trumpet player would play all the arias puccini rigoletto tosca the trumpet player was the lead they were the pavarotti they were the pavarotti wow so that's really what i learned my concept of playing the trumpet which i tell people singing through the horn that's what it is isn't it it is one of the one of the things that drew me to trumpet actually was because i'm primarily i was originally a singer and love singing and it felt like it was, I mean, obviously it's on the mouth, 
Yeah. But it felt like you, it's as close to singing. It's not like playing the piano. It's less mechanical. Right. It felt like it's that much closer. Well, it's a wind instrument. Singing yeah. is wind. Yeah. Stan Getz says uh, that the he feels the tenor saxophone is as close as you can get to the human voice. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're using the breath that you don't do on a piano. Yeah. I was at Dexter Gordon. I think he was trying to sound like Richard Burton. Right. <laughs> or something like I think that. he came close. He came close, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Richard Burton. I met Dexter once in front of really? my apartment in New York. Wow. He was drunk, but I met him, you know. So, so, so you listeners, that's what I'm talking about. He's met everybody. So where do we start? So, uh, yeah, so how did, you, how did you get started? What was your first jobs and stuff? Well, I started playing the trumpet at five. Wow. My mother sat me on, my mother played piano like Count Basie. Wow. Played stride and everything. She sat me on her knee when I was five and taught me hundreds of standards without a sheet of music. Okay? So the American songbook is in my DNA. Because <laughs> awesome. I learned it all by ear. Well, yeah, yeah. Which you, you, you play mainly by ear. Like, yeah, I play jazz, jazz totally by ear. I can read in a big band, but I'm, I don't know what key I'm improvising in. I don't know anything about chords. I had perfect pitch. So for me, it's all auditory. Brilliant. Which is is the ideal for jazz, really. I that's think so. what it is. I mean, it's nothing, I always tell people nothing wrong with learning theory, but I'm just saying that's not me, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, I always thought, I have obviously haven't got anywhere near that, but, cause, um, but I remember when I was singing and I took up trumpet, I thought the ideal for me would have been to know the trumpet so well that you literally, in the same way as you sing, played the trumpet. Do you know what I mean? You exactly. literally would. You're singing through the horn. Yeah. And you know the funny story, because my, my friend Marty Napoleon played with Louis Armstrong for years, and he told me the story, so when anyone asked Louis what key, Louis would hit a note on the trumpet and say, that key. <laughs> so he was an ear player. The old cats were ear players. First time I worked with Zoot Sims, I said, I'm an ear player. He said, yeah, me too. So a lot of the old regime were ear players, Lester Young. Not, yeah. to, not today, you know, they all have gone to college. The old, the old school, which is like we'll get to later, but you, you're wanting to do is to keep that, keep that old school way of playing and knowing, carrying on, not get lost. You know, a friend, a great piano player, Kenny Barron, who played with Stan Getz, he's an incredible piano man, he, and they asked him, but what do you think about the young musicians today? He said, they're fantastic. The only thing that's missing is they're playing a little more from the head than the heart. Right, yeah. Yeah, now, I've talked to a lot of musicians like, like um, Van Morrison and people who have jazz players and horn players with them all the time and the difference between the, the older school guys and the modern ones is often the modern guys are more just playing the chords. Yeah. They're just playing notes that are in the chords. Right. Whereas the older guys took it from the melody right. by ear and then right. took it as far as they could from that. Right. But they were starting with, in their mind at least, they're going from the melody. Stan Getz said something very hip, I thought. He said, no matter how complex the music gets, you're still making a melody. Yeah, as, as, that is true. That's true. I have a dear friend, Terry Gibbs. He's 92. He played with Charlie Parker. And he said, whatever Charlie Parker played, fast or slow, it was always a song. Yeah. So lyricism, making up melodies, whether you're playing fast or bebop, doesn't matter. You've got to... What I always tell people, tell a story when you play. Tell a story. Brilliant. So when, so what was the first gigs you did? So how did you get 
telling my your first stories. Gig, you would like this. Telling a story. My first gig was 11 years old, guesting with Bobby Hackett and Jack Teagarden. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How did that come about for an 11-year-old? I was doing a television show with... I don't know if you know who Chubby Jackson is. Yeah, yeah, totally. Our Chubby ran a show him. called Little Rascals, which means it was had jazz, but then it showed the cartoon, the, the films of Little Rascals. Gang, oh, gang. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had a bass with a face on it, you know, but he had a great big band on that show, and I was on his show many times, and he got me the gig with Hackett and Teagarden. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. And then so you just went on from there. Uh, yeah. Then after that, I was a three-time winner on, maybe before your time, a show called the Ted Mac Amateur Hour. Right. No, I and I it was like the forerunner of American Isle. Wow. I, Frank Sinatra came through that show, wow. Pat Boone, a lot of celebrities. And then I toured with that show for a year, and then I played Madison Square Garden at 13 years old for 35,000 people. Wow. I think I peaked early. <laughs> and during that time, like Maynard Ferguson heard me on that show, because I, I sent you the clip. I played a high G at the end wow. of the, I found a new baby. And uh, he heard that and he asked my dad, because my dad was making mouthpieces for him. I'd like to take your son on the road as my protege. And my dad politely turned him down. He said, no, I want my, my, I want my son to grow up like normal. <laughs> Probably a good move. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was 13. Then when I was 17, I left high school and went on the road with Glenn Miller. Buddy DeFranco was leading the band, okay? And then I went right from Glenn Miller to Lionel Hampton's band. Wow, quite a difference as well. Oh, boy. <laughs> I have a funny story. It took me three hours to quit Lionel Hampton's band. Locked in his suite in New York with his gangster manager said, who do you think you are? You can't leave Lionel Hampton. And he actually pushed me and backed me against the wall physically. And, and Lionel Hampton said, he said, Gates, Gates, I love your playing. What do you want, more solos? The gig, dig this, the gig paid $50 a night and you had to pick up your own hotel. Wow. And it's like three hours of playing Flying Home, you know. <laughs> and I never enjoyed much being in a section. I was groomed to be a soloist in front of the band. And sitting in a yeah. section all night playing charts was not my thing you know but anyway wow. to get out of that gig it took me three hours three hours so how did you how did you end up with the gangster then oh man well that's a long story but <laughs> I, I i got back at him 20 years later oh fair enough he was stealing from hamp and everything hamp right. had just lost his wife and hamp was going through a rough time right he's yeah. a beautiful man and what a player because yeah, his wife was his manager when yeah she was earlier on yeah, he, yeah. He, she had just died wow yeah, it must have been tough. Yeah, he was taking a lot of pills and stuff, you know. Right. But he, what a player. Oh, my God. And, and a nice cat, you know. Where from I there? actually hired, I hired Hamp, and that's how I got back at the oh, yeah. manager. I hired Hamp 20 <laughs> years later, and me and my partner, Bobby Rosengarten, great drummer. The rule is never put Hamp on first. You always got to put him on last because you can't get him off the stand. So this was a gig, and they wanted a name band in the middle of the gig, so I hired Lionel Hampton. So sure enough, I put him on too early, and we had to go back on to do a dance set. He's playing, and he won't stop. So me and my partner go on each side of Hamp and take him from the vibes and carry him off stage. And while we're carrying him off stage, he's doing this with the mallet still. There's no vibes. And we carry him off into the wings and go on to our set. 
And the audience just thought it was part of the shtick. Yeah, uh, right. And I say, yeah, you, you've been through so, I mean, it's like, to there us, are it's like, There are characters. Yeah, I mean, like, to us, like I was saying earlier, it's like you're like a bridge. You know, we just missed, you know, growing up, we just missed the, the getting with the greats, seeing the greats, especially in England. Yeah. Because um, they, they didn't all come over, you know. We obviously, we worked with Kenny Ball and a lot of the English guys that were the, the, the generation in between. But, um, you know, so, so you're sort of like a bridge between us and And I was, I was laid guys. also because I was born in 47, okay? Yeah. So it was almost over. But I was a kid and I got to, my parents had a jazz club and I got to hook up with all these guys. So, yeah, I was lucky. Yeah, you were sort of like on the end, on the end, the end of it. Yeah. And then that leads to us. And then between us, we're somehow going to keep this genre of you know, music. Do you know Harry Sweets going. Edison? Oh, of course. Okay, so we played a lot together. So he tells me a story, which is an amazing story. He said, Glenn, I got a gig when I was young as a dishwasher in a club because Art Tatum was playing in the club. He said, you won't believe this, but the piano was terrible and all the keys were sticking. And Tatum would play those runs with the right hand and flip the sticking keys up with the left hand. He said, but if you closed your eyes, you couldn't tell. <laughs> so one night, Tatum's outside with all the guys on 52nd Street. And, he, and Tatum says, you know, he's blind. And they were complaining about the parking or something. He said, I can park the car better than any of you guys. And, the guy, and they hand him the key. And he does a perfect parallel park on the car on 52nd Street. Wow. I grew up around all black legends, and they had all the reason to hate white people. Because yeah. I heard all the stories, okay? Yeah. Milt Hinton told me about lynchings going on in Jackson, Mississippi. Wow. Clark Terry was at a gas station, and they were firing guns at his feet, making him dance. And they gave me nothing but love because they admired that I had talent, and I had a tremendous respect for swing. Right. Milt Hinton told me, listen, man, all I care about is if you can swing, and Glenn, you can swing. They loved, they loved that, and that, that was my ticket in. Brilliant. Being able That's to swing. And you know, talking about swing, yeah. I don't know today, currently, I don't know if swing has got the same strength that it did in the 40s and the 30s. Well, no, I mean, obviously, because you were talking about, like, the, like you, were, you were talking about, you came through a challenge show. Right, like you said, that, and that would be American Idol or something. Right. Or, you know, what are they called, now, X Factor or something. I mean. I was thinking when you were talking about, because you obviously were getting to many, you played with Benny Goodman. You know, you think about it, the people that are into pop music now or whatever, I'm sure they love it and stuff like that. But if you think about the fact that pop music back, this was pop music back in the day. It was a period where this was pop music. And, and any kid, any teenager, any teenager sitting in a, a cafe or a bar somewhere talking to each other would know who was the second trumpet in Benny Goodman's oh, Bobby band. Hackett, and, yeah, yeah, third you know, trumpet, like, you know. Yeah. Everybody would know these things, like the same All way the sidemen, they know more. Oh, yeah, they'd know everything. And they knew Gene Cripp. Now, it's a, you're into jazz or something, if you know this. It's like you're, it's a very specific, you know, even listening to jazz nowadays. No one knows, you know, jazz, unless they're actually uh, gone to, going to a, a, a course or something at a university. Right, right. Yeah. Ja appreciation course. Yeah. But I think the key point and what changed, okay, the big band era, when Benny Goodman came into Carnegie Hall in 38, yeah. that became the national music of the country. That's the only time jazz was the national music of the country. Yeah. But you got to realize jazz during the 30s and 40s was for dancing. Yeah. You totally, know, yeah. And that dropped out. 
Yeah. And you lost a lot of audience when the dancing dropped out. Yeah, I mean, because you yeah, immediately get to the 60s, then you get into the twist and yeah. gradually partner dancing dropped out. And then, yeah, and then you head up to the mosh pit and people jumping up and down and fighting. Exactly. Which is the whole... Exactly, that's another thing. So, so the music, it's like, because we play for, um, for, and for a long time, we played for predominantly dancers. Really? Or dancers. Yeah, and um, they really appreciate it. They really appreciate the swing, the, the rhythm. And we always help do gigs for dancers uh, and help promote the dancing because that keeps the music genre going as well. It helps that because without that, it's like, I think even Lionel Hampton's, is not in communication. Lionel Hampton, his wife used to go out and check on whether, or was it Dizzy Gillespie? His wife used to go out and check if the people would, even Dizzy Gillespie, they used to check, were they dancing to the, uh, Absolutely. the songs? And that was like- They a, weren't offended yeah. if people danced, you know. It was like a barometer of whether that track was good, whether the band was playing well, because you gotta have a good rhythm to dance to. Absolutely. You know. I mean, like, when I worked with Benny, he would take so much care for counting off a tune to make sure it was the right tempo, even though we were playing concerts, but it was so ingrained to him because in those days, if you had the wrong tempo, the dancers would leave the floor and you have an instant yeah. result, uh, no result. Yeah, yeah, It's totally. an awful feeling to have everybody leave because you have the wrong tempo. Yeah, no, we, we've been through that, yeah. And then you know you've got to finish the song. So you've got to sta stand there finishing that song looking at an empty dance floor. Yeah. So we, we learned early, early on. Moment of truth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah and also we, got, we came from, because we danced before we, we used to swing dance and stuff before we uh, played at a band, actually. Wow. Yeah, so we saw both sides, so we understood, me and the bass player, particularly Ken, um, he was a dance champion, swing dance champion in London. Really? So we were like, when the swing, see the swing came back for a while in America, in the late 90s. Right. And we sort of luckily lucked in on being here at the time. You mean like with Harry Connick and those? Uh, yeah, you had Harry Connick, but then you also had like, um, it was like a, they called it Neo Swing. You had like Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and uh, those guys and... My friend, Brian, my friend was Brian Setzer helped doing it, the guy from yeah. Stray Cats. Yeah. My friend, uh, trombone player, he started out with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. He got them a lot, he got them their right. first record deal, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that sort of came back for a while and, you know, that was with the dancers, the dancing people, sometimes would people, but often some of the bands would negate that or yeah. not be interested, but predominantly it was the interest in the dancing that led them to the music. And when you think music, of jazz today is zero dancing today. Yeah. Modern jazz, zero. It's all, I mean, okay, I understand it. They say that Charlie Parker took jazz from the dance hall to the concert hall. And jazz deserves, deserves to be a concert genre, I yeah, agree. Yeah, totally. But Man, there's something about when a band gets into a groove for dancing and swinging yeah. away like, like uh, you know, Lunsford or uh, Basie. I was going to say, yeah, Jim, Jimmy Duke. Lunsford, totally. I mean... He was a favorite of the dancers. Oh, my so, God. In, in, in New York. So it's like, yeah, so that it keeps it going. No, no, I was, I was thinking Chick even... Chick you know. Totally. The, the Savoy Ballroom. Savoy Ballroom, yeah. All that. It's like... And, and basically, you know, we, we talk to swing dancers and they talk about the Savoy Ballroom and... I mean, when I did Carnegie Hall, I did 1988, the 50th oh, anniversary yeah. of the 38 concert. They were all Bobby Soxers then in 38. Yeah. And they were 60 now. They're allowed to sit on the stage with the band. But I looked at them and I'm playing and I see decades dropping off their face as they're reliving that night. I mean, if you see pictures, you know, they're all got Bobby Soxers and they're all stomping their feet to Benny in 38. 
They wow. were just teenagers. Yeah, it's amazing. It was, you know, like as big as Elvis, really. Oh yeah, I mean, and you did that. You did the Harry James seat. I played. played. I, I sat in Harry James' chair all night. Yeah. And you had the original music. Original music, all brown from Library of Congress. Little notes from Harry saying, "You got this one, Ziggy." You know. <laughs> and Ziggy, wow! Like, what a what a trumpet. Who had Ziggy's? Who played Ziggy's? Uh, a guy oh, named um, I forgot his name. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, just actually being in the recreation of the, with you know, of the Benny Goodman Carnegie Hall thing must well, have been I, an amazing. I, I applaud you for keeping this music alive. Thank you. Which I've tried to do my whole life, and uh, I applaud you for that. And you're doing it in such a way where you're you're building more and more uh, momentum, which is great because your marketing is correct and. Yeah, it's an interesting time. It's an interesting time because the music business is so different. And we're like dinosaurs of music trying to reach the modern, the, the, the but, now. But you're doing it. it. It seems to be working. And people, I think, I was saying earlier that with the, we were talking about internet and YouTube and stuff. And I think one of the good sides of the internet and YouTube is that, the, like, because we get teenagers sometimes come to our gigs. And like I said, you know, someone's shouting out, Louis Prima, and stuff like that. And you think, well, how do they know that? And I think the more aware or self-determined and, and interested younger people go on the internet and they go from one thing to another. They'll look at something and you know they'll, they'll, they'll start searching and looking for Which new things. Which is easy on the internet, it's yeah. easy to do that. I mean, when we were young, we used to, I used to be into Cab Calloway and Louis Jordan and stuff, uh, and, all the, and all the old jazz shorts, they used to call them jazz shorts, you know, everyone, everyone from Dizzy Gillespie to Fats Waller, yeah. uh, these things that they used to do, the, the old video jukeboxes from the 40s, and all you could do, we used to get bootleg videos from America, really, and get them exchanged over to VHS for the UK, and stay up all night watching them. Now, you can just go on YouTube and find them. Right. So it's way easier. Everything's in a way. available. Yeah. And like I was saying, that in New York, there's a sort of a hot jazz renaissance with like 20 and 30 somethings playing hot jazz, 1930s, 1920s jazz. And um, there are a lot of the audience are swing dancers, or, you know, earlier, you know, Charleston and swing dancers dancing to the hot jazz and it's coming around again. And then you've got um, Vince Giordano, is it Vince right. Giordano? Right. And the Nighthawks, who were in, you know, they got on the uh, Boardwalk TV show. But, you know, um, you know, you've got these guys that have, you know, it's coming around again. They're like playing the original stuff and they probably are finding it through the internet. They don't even buy CDs. Right. You know, they don't have, I mean. It's all streaming. Yeah. Although, I mean, uh, vinyl is back again. We brought our last two albums out on vinyl. Really? Yeah. Wow. I know so, it's coming back a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. We went into a record shop in England, uh, HMV, which is pretty all but shut down. They mainly do game, video games. Um, and they have a few CDs, and there was more shut vinyl. Down shut down last week, did it? There you go, Alex is saying it shut down last well, week, HMV. For me... His master's voice. I felt I had, in the 80s, I peaked. My last tour in Europe was 35 concerts in 30 days, wow. okay? I went over there with Peanuts Tucker, I went over there with Wilbur, I went over there with my own band. And that's well, why I admire what you're doing. I felt I left my whole clique of young guys Right. Scott Hamilton, uh, Ken Poplowski, Harry Allen, uh, Howard Alden, um, Butch Miles. I left that whole clique and I met Suzanne Summers and she loved me and, and I went to Hollywood, okay? 
Hollywood. Exactly. And here I am now going from that, you know, being on the road doing one-nighters, not like, like maybe Chick Corea or Michael Jackson would. You know, I show up at the Heathrow Airport yeah, and there's yeah. no one there to meet me, you know. Yeah, yeah. I go from that to having a big office at Universal Studios next to Steven Spielberg. Wow. Going on stage eight shows a week playing for tens of millions of people and bringing all that experience because Suzanne gave me complete creative freedom. So I, on that wow. show I played bebop, I played blues, I played swing, I played everything. Ten minutes from my house, I thought I died and went to heaven. <laughs> Literally. It sounds like it. I mean, it was another world that very few jazz musicians ever experienced. Just playing, and you could feel it, you know, when those cameras are on, you know you're reaching tens of millions of people. Yeah. Even rock groups can't do that. Yeah. You know, and it was a feeling that yeah, it's even hard to describe to my jazz friends what that felt like. No, it's amazing. Yeah, and there's only four live bands at that time. Wow. The Tonight Show, Arsenio Hall, Letterman, yeah. and me. In the whole country, I had one of four gigs. Wow. That's good that the traditions keep going. I mean, I was Doc Severinsen and stuff. Right. But um, I was like... <laughs> I knew yeah. Doc, and I knew I played with Doc. Really? In fact, I did, when I did Sinatra, Doc Severinsen loaned us the whole Tonight Show band for the gig. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's apparently how, going back, we're flitting about now, but how, with the Neo Swing thing and the revival, that was apparently how uh, Brian Setzer got into doing the big band stuff. Because Brian Setzer loved, loved jazz. He wasn't now, what's just, his back? Because I know the name and I've seen him. He's the Stray Cats. Okay. So, like, it was Stray Cats, which was, which was like a rockabilly sort of revival in the 1970s. Because I know the Rolling Stones drummer, he's a big jazz fan too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we met him, uh, um, Charlie Watts, we met him actually at uh, Berlin Airport once. And uh, he sat down with us and with our drummer, Peter. And um, Pete had this book of jazz drummers. And um, he's sitting there with Charlie Watts, uh, who's just totally down to earth and normal. He's sitting with him and he's going, he's going through this book and he's got like, you know, there's Gene Krupa with, with his drum kit and there's Buddy Rich with a drum kit and Big Sid Catler with his drum kit. And as he's going through the book, Charlie Watts is going, I've got that kit. I've got that kit. I've got that kit. He doesn't mean he has the same make. It he's means got he's got kit. that kit. Yeah, yeah. Like he's got a garage apparently full of drum kits. He's also got a lot of cars and he doesn't drive. So yeah, that was really interesting. Everybody wants to be a swing player if they could. Exactly, yeah. You know, Kenny Rogers came on our show and during one of the breaks, he walks over and picks up the bass and starts swinging his ass off. I mean, literally. Well. So after the show's over, I went up to Kenny and said, listen, I'm really sorry. I'm embarrassed, I said, but I'm not a country music fan. I can't, I can't believe the way you sound. He said, Glenn, I started out in a group like the Hilos singing, playing bass. That's where I started. It's interesting because you think there's such a divide. I mean, obviously now country music is quite a different thing to what country music yeah. used to be. But when you go back to like our era that we're listening to, 30s, 40s and 50s, um, I've looked in it and you like, for instance, you have um, the session guys, Nashville session guys. Yeah. Grady Martin, who's yeah. one of the most famous guitarists. Yep. Who played on nearly everything and then ended up playing on the rockabilly as well because he was the session guitarist. These got Hank Garland and him. They, you listen to their early stuff, it's basically, they were, they were the same mentality as a jazz session guy. That's right. It's, it's just the same thing. Yeah. It's just that they were placed where they were right. in a country backing. And then also early you've got Western Swing, Bob Wills, 
and stuff. Which I mean, was, did, what's his name, Chuck? Who's the famous guitar player? Country, Chet Atkins. Chet Atkins. All the jazz yeah. guys love Chet Atkins. Yeah, yeah. And it was monster. just like they had a country sound because they're from wherever they're from, Nashville or whatever. Right. And so and you look earlier with Western Swing. And it swung. It swung. And they even had the horns. That they had a big, you know, some big beaver by um, Bob Wills. It's like a Woody Herman big band number. Yeah, yeah. They're trumpet players. Very interesting. They played more on the beat. But very, sort of like also Bruce got like Randolph a... Randolph and all those guys, yeah, you know. But, but there's like a, uh, how would you say, it? like almost like a Mexican influence. Right. I guess the Tex-Mex influence too. Right. Uh, and then, of course, out of that, I bet you got, I, I don't know, but I bet probably Herb Albert came out of that area as well because right. he's got the both sides so was country big in england country sort of yeah country my, press, my press agent that he recently passed away in manchester he was my press agent and he was a big country fan yeah well we do, we've surprised. done a few festivals in england which is always a bit odd to us because we're obviously not really any base in country music at all we've done a couple of big country festivals where you got like a thousand people wearing you know stetsons Really? In front of you, yeah. Wow. In England, you know, the north of England, like, you know, oh, I'm a cowboy, like, you really? know. Really? Oh, but that was the same. That was one of the differences uh, in between being in England and America, I find, doing the music we do. When you asked about, you were asked when we were just chatting earlier, uh, you were talking about the Americans, like, say, for instance, Italians in New Jersey who come and see us in a theater, a theater, you know, because in England, we're looked upon a bit of, uh, like, I say young, you know, but younger men or younger pe people doing a music out of our time as if we're doing a recreation of something, which we're not to us. We've taken the genre we love and we're just continuing it. We also write our own original music in that genre, um, which sometimes is a bit of a bane because people don't realize we write our own music because they just think it's an old song. Right. But in a way, that's a compliment. Right. But, you know, these guys do it. Whereas when we're in America, they don't think of us so much as recreating a music. They just think of us as a continuation of it. Because luckily, because of like the younger guys like you that came in towards the end of it and carried it on, it's a continuation of music. It's the folk music of America. And it's, there's a lot of know, guys playing swing music today. I mean, Scott Hamilton, Harry Allen, uh, yeah, and you know, there's a whole clique of young guys that f are forwarding the music. Yeah. Know. Yeah, no, awesome. I was listening to him recently, and we, we our, our tax play, John, John uh, loves Scott. Right. Um, and there's loads of different guys. Like another guy who, who's sort of a good friend of ours, Ray Gelato. Uh, I don't know if you remember him. He no. plays sax. Very prima influenced as well, Sam Botero, but also he plays like, like John. He loves Ben Webster. Right. Um, and he's often sat in with us and they play together. But like, he keeps it going. He's, 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 uh, he sort of started just literally just before us. Uh, and so also keeping the music going. So in the UK. Have you, you played Ronnie Scott's? Yeah, yeah. It took us about 15 years to get in there. Yeah. Being a little really too junior. Right? Like I was saying, you see, you get Louis Prima and the guys at Louis Prima who are so experienced and so musical that they can then play with it and do the showmanship. Yeah. We've always gone for the showmanship because we didn't just want to preach to the converted and play to jazz fans or jive fans. We also wanted to sell it to anyone. You know, we go and play at a, a, a young university leaving ball and you're playing to just a load of drunken university students. 
we want them to go away liking the music. So part of it is the showmanship we learned actually when we were street entertainers, to be honest, yeah. playing in the street. You had to keep the attention of an audience and to get a lot of pound coins in your trumpet case when we first started. You had to do the showmanship. Music, the music wasn't enough. They just walked past you. Yeah. So we learned that early on. And so like Louis Prima, we do that. But you also get a bit of a stigma because you're a bit of a like, well, you must need to do the showmanship to get, get anywhere, which is not quite the same thing. Obviously, yeah, the great musicians could get on stage and just play. But back in the day, even Duke Ellington had Ray Nance, who was called, you know, floor show because of his showmanship. Yeah. You know, and even, Duke had a lot of showmanship. Yeah. So did Basie. Like, yeah, and, and even... It's not quite the same showmanship, but they all had a certain, you know, a beingness, a certain way of being on stage. In the 30s and 40s, you had to have a degree of showmanship. Yeah. yeah. Jazz had not switched over to a concert genre. It was yeah. for dancing. You know. Totally. Um, yeah, and when we're playing for dancers, one of the compliments we get is, you know, we have trouble dancing because we're trying to look at you all the time because you're doing something good. Do you, when you play for dancing, do you find yourself pulling back the showmanship angle uh, a little bit? To some degree, like we just did the Coliseum in St. Petersburg, New Year's Eve, and it was all dancing, yeah. mainly dancing. Yeah. But you've got to keep the showmanship in as well because you will have the seats. They have the seats around the edges. So you have people sitting out from the dancing or some people who are not dancing. But yeah, and also you're often doing longer sets when it's for dancing. Right. So we did three sets for New Year's, whereas if we do a theater, it's just 2.45s. Sometimes at a festival, it's one hour, one hour 15. Okay, that was part one, uh, or the first half of the interview. First half is in part one. Part two will be after part one. And be the second half. So next week, we'll release these a week apart, just so you get a chance to catch up. And uh, we'll see you next week for part two. See you next week. <laughs>